Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 34 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show where every week I'm having deep, vulnerable, unedited conversations with men from around the world who have overcome adversity to thrive in their business and their lives. I hope you're enjoying your week, I hope everything's going well for you, you're feeling good, you're feeling on top of things, you're smashing those goals, your relationships are feeling strong, you're growing together and everything is uh, feeling good. I've had some amazing breakthroughs with my clients this week. Everybody seems to be going through a big shift this week and seeing some really uh, exciting new possibilities, starting to feel more fulfilled, more authentic, and just generally living a more happy and fulfilling life, which is my goal for everybody that I work with, is to help them heal their past, help them see things that maybe they haven't seen before so they can ultimately just feel better about themselves and go through their life feeling fulfilled, excited, and smashing their goals and being exponentially successful. What I've been thinking a lot about this week is relationships and just, well, it's a lot of what I do in my uh, my work with my clients is helping them either find the relationship they've always been looking for, help find their, their soulmate or just improve their own relationship. And one thing I'm seeing a lot is that guys in particular, we need to take more responsibility for who we're being when we're looking for a partner, especially if you're single, taking responsibility for your role in creating a partner, creating an amazing relationship. Because oftentimes we think uh, women out there, there's no good men out there, and we don't understand how much we're bringing to the situation. And a lot of the stuff is invisible, unfortunately. Some of the client work I've done this week is one of my clients is seeing things show up in his relationship that are, and he can tell, and I'm sure you guys can tell, that it's an unexpected response to different situations. It might be jealousy or it might be just feeling some pain around some way of interacting that your partner's doing with you, something like that. And you can tell that something's not right there. So a lot of the work I do, I have this really incredible process, this healing process where I I go and help find out where these things are coming from, identify them and heal them so you can actually move on and, and move past some of those things that you're holding back in your relationship. The poet Rumi says that our task is not to seek for love, but to remove all the barriers that we've put up against it. So that's what I really believe, is that all of us are actually just love. We're just made with love. As kids, we just were pure love. And then over time, the world started piling all these layers onto us. Our parents told us we couldn't do something at school. We got guided a certain way and told we couldn't be this way. And that was and all these things start layering on top of you. And in simplistic terms, layer over that natural love that you have inside of you. So we really have to identify some of those barriers that you've put up and start bringing them down so that you're free to express your own love and attract the right people into your life. But that's your responsibility. You have to identify those things. And that's why we see so many guys that you know are in relationships four, five, six, seven years, not getting engaged, not wanting to commit, because they know deep down that they are not whole and complete. They can tell there's something that's holding them back or that they feel that the relationship is not quite right. So you need to take 100% responsibility for your role in those situations. What are you bringing into this? And like I say, a lot of the times this stuff's invisible. So if you want to have a conversation about that, feel free. I'm really passionate about helping 
guys heal this part of them because I want to see everybody having an incredible relationship, just being free to love, not feeling any fear, not feeling jealousy, not feeling like you're not good enough, not being offended, not getting defensive, not arguing all the time, just having like a really fulfilling co-creative relationship with somebody else in your life. Reach out to me if you want to have that conversation anytime. You can email me nathan at nathanseward.com or look me up and message me on Facebook. Super easy to find. This week on the show, a real privilege to have Connor Beaton. Connor is a guy that has just inspired me so much. He started a business and a community called the Man Talks Community. And it's now an international organization, as you'll hear. Connor's expanded Man Talks uh, all over Canada, the States. And it's really focused on men's health, their wellness, their success, their fulfillment, all the stuff we're talking about on the show all the time. And Connor, you'll hear his story. He overcame a lot of the stuff that I was just mentioning. You know, For him, it led to him cheating on his girlfriend and then not being able to be honest about that. And you'll hear how he dealt with that and the path that he took to become the man that we see today. So as always, we start with Connor's upbringing in Canada and a few of the details of what have led him to be the success that he is today. Enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Connor Beaton. So I grew up in central Alberta, just as Edmonton, Alberta, which is the capital of Alberta. And, you know, Alberta is known as being like the the sort of, for if there's any Americans listening in or even for the people that are abroad, they'll get a more, a better reference for this. But Alberta is known as being like the Texas of Canada. So there's, there's a lot of oil. There's a lot of oil money. There's a lot of really big ass trucks. There's a lot of cowboys. And there's a lot of very stereotypical, macho, hyper masculine dudes. And so that's the environment that I grew up in. I, you know, like every good Canadian boy, I grew up playing hockey. Um, I grew up between two separate families. So my parents uh, were married for 13 years and then they got divorced. And then they both remarried other people. And then they simultaneously, and I don't even know, like they must have like worked this out somehow, but they both had a daughter around the exact same time and they both had a son around the exact same time and then they both bought a dog. And so I grew up between these like two families that were identical in in their structure, but polar opposites in their sort of energy and emotional states and, and the sort of infrastructure of how the dynamic, the power dynamics were playing out between the families. So I really got to see polarities and juxtaposition and you know different masculine and feminine roles within these environments so it's like a rich dad poor dad kind of scenario yeah yeah sort of yeah i mean you know i had on one side the very like traditional hyper masculine stepfather who you know was a lead engineer for the city and you know was didn't really know how to talk about emotions or feelings and and for the most part was pretty physically and verbally abusive um, when I was growing up. And so that was, that was a challenge. And then on the other side, I had my dad, my biological father, who I only saw once a month, who was really the opposite of that. He was very emotionally intelligent. He was very kind. He was very sort of soft. And, you know, he was more of like the feminine balance in the marriage with my stepmom, because my stepmom was this national VIP. You know, she was one of the top earning women in Canada back in her day. And so I saw this very different uh, dichotomy between the two families that I grew up in. And it really showed me the different parts of masculinity and, and femininity. Yeah. And so what was your experience? Is there one that you preferred more than the other or did you just 
it was your curiosity was just like, oh, this is interesting. This is different ways to be a man. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, growing up, especially because I grew up in sort of like, you know, that emotionally and, and verbally abusive environment and sometimes physically abusive environment. Of course, I, I never really wanted to be there. Right. And so it was always a little bit of a challenge because it created this space where I always wanted to move more towards being in the other space. And so I kind of saw a strong men as almost evil growing up because I had negative experiences with them. And I saw more feminine guys as sort of these saviors that, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. And that's where I always wanted to go to. And so after high school, I ended up, I mean, I barely made it through high school. I was kind of reckless and, you know, displayed the the sort of classic abused child syndrome where I would fight back. I would get in fights in high school. I wouldn't show up to class. I would skip. I wouldn't pay attention. I wouldn't do my homework. So I Barely made it through high school, but after I did graduate, of course, I was left with what the hell am I going to do with my life now? And I didn't really have much to do. Uh, you know, I didn't really have a lot of skills. I'd played hockey up to almost a semi-professional level, but didn't really have the drive to keep going. Plus, I was like the enforcer. So I was the fighter, the defenseman that was always fighting. And the, the unfortunate thing about that is that when you get into junior hockey, I'm sure this is like this in rugby, but when you get to a certain level and you're the enforcer, I'm like 6'2", and back then I was, you know, 220, I'm 200 now pounds. When you get to that certain level, you start having to fight guys that are like 6'5", 6'6", and just like these monsters. That kind of made it not fun anymore. So I, so I left hockey. But anyway, I had, I didn't really know what to do next. And so I ended up doing construction. And again, here I found myself in this weird dichotomy because my stepdad was in the construction industry and I started, you know, based on uh, a conversation with my father, I started taking singing lessons. And so I was sort of this like weird juxtaposition, this like weird dichotomy of a man that was trying to like find this balance, this center balance, because I would go work construction during the day and then go sing opera at night. And so I was really trying to find some resemblance of balance or equanimity in my life at that time. And, and that would kind of be my struggle throughout, you know, th for probably like the next 10 years in many ways. Did you feel like you had to hide those sides of yourself? So hide that artist opera singer when you're on the construction site and then hide that more masculine construction side when you were singing? No, I mean, I was always pretty transparent with that kind of stuff. I actually kind of wore it. I, most people probably would do that, but I kind of wore it like a badge. You know, I was proud of it. I was just like, fuck this. Oh, can I swear on your podcast? <laughs> no, yeah. I just dropped that. Okay. Uh, you know, I was kind of like, fuck this. I don't, I don't really care what people think. I'm trying to figure this shit out and I enjoy the fact that that I'm not your everyday construction worker or that I'm not your fancy flamboyant, you know, opera singer and that I kind of broke the stereotypes around that. And so I was pretty open, you know, on the construction site that I was singing classical music and learning music on the side and you know, people that I knew in the in the music industry knew that I did construction. And, and it was interesting because I cut a lot of flack for it on both sides, right? And it just seemed like I didn't really fit into either of those spaces. So that was kind of interesting. I'm sure that a lot of guys that are out there can resonate with that in some way, shape, or form where if they have a creative side, which I believe that we all have some form of a creative side, maybe it's writing, maybe it's painting or dancing or whatever, that they inevitably feel like it doesn't belong 
in their current circumstances, whether they're, uh, you know, a banker or in finance or in construction or, or architecture or whatever. And it can be a very challenging space for a guy to find a space where all of his parts, all of himself is really accepted and integrated. And that's been a huge journey for me. And I think that that's one of the things that I've seen after working with thousands and tens of thousands of men around North America is that every man that's out there in some way has gone on this, a very similar journey to me where there's a part of themselves that they feel is either broken or there's a part of themselves that they feel like it, they have to reject or can never be accepted or won't be accepted by other people. And this is part of the sort of quote unquote hero's journey that we all have to go on is integrating these different parts of ourselves. Yeah, I can relate to that. For me, it was being gay at an all boys high school and Mm. sort of figuring out pretty early on that that was not acceptable for whatever reason. And then going into flying, that's a, a note at the time, but it's a fairly masculine dominated industry in terms of, you know, the, the cockpit anyway, it's very clue was in the name, I guess, but the, um, <laughs> the, yeah, it's a very much, Hey, this is a rational place where we've got a job to do and we're going from A to B. There's no room for emotion. This is a serious business. At, at its core so for me hiding that gay side of myself or you know for like you said for you it was maybe the creative side or whatever that was something that I'm still unpacking to be honest and how to integrate that and how to feel safe letting all of me out in every circumstance yeah yeah it's it's interesting because sometimes we enter into spaces and we think that we're going to be more accepted you know I hear a lot of guys that have come out and entered into the gay scene and, you know, and there's part of, part of them that's still not accepted in that space. And it was interesting for me as a straight guy, you know, going into opera where I thought that, you know, for sure that the guys in construction would probably, you know, razz me and and joke around and be like, you know, Oh, are, are you gay? And question my sexuality. But I never expected to be in the music scene and have people in that space be like, are you sure you're straight? Like, you know, you sing opera and, and it's just like, yeah, why, you know, why can't I do that? Why is that so weird to you that, that a straight guy would want to sing and would, and would want to be creative and tap into those, to, into those, into those parts and integrate these different parts. And so I think it's interesting because we are all on some level, really what we're all looking for is not only a, a place to fit in. I think that that's initially what people look for. They look for communities and environments and friendship and circles where they quote unquote fit in, but fitting in is different from belonging. And there are two different things that I would just like to make a distinction between because you can fit in in a lot of different places and still not feel like you belong there. And that is the unfortunate part because what a lot of guys are lacking, they might fit in in the locker room of the rugby game or whatever, but they might not feel like they actually belong there. They might not actually feel like there's that sort of familia or like family vibe or family feeling that you feel like you're actually a part of something and integrated into it. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Can you make more of a distinction between those two things? Yeah, for sure. So oftentimes we will seek out opportunities, we'll seek out jobs, we'll seek out friend circles or even, you know, the people that we date, men or women, in order to feel a sense of fitting in. And the issue is that oftentimes 
we'll kind of get this 80% feel. So let's say that we get a job working for a company that we, you know, really like and respect and we start working for that company, but we don't feel fulfilled by it and we enjoy the work and the work is exactly what we want to be doing. And at the end of the day, we can't help but shake going home and feeling like there's something missing. And that missingness is the feeling of belonging in a space. And that belonging in a space means that all your parts you feel, or at least you have the perception that all of your parts, the parts that you show people and the parts that you might not show people in that space are welcome and accepted there. And that's the main difference between fitting in somewhere and belonging somewhere. Yeah, that's a great distinction. For me, like again, flying, like I love flying. I wanted to do it since I was a little boy and there's so much of me, that world is me. And yet, rightly or wrongly, part of me, that sexuality or whatever just seemed to be, didn't fit in or was out of the ordinary in that environment. Mm. So I totally get that. And now that I'm in the coaching community, I'm a member of a, a group called 4PC, 35 really high level coaches. And man, that's the first time I felt that sense of belonging where it doesn't matter what mood you're in, what you want to bring, whether you're feeling amazing about yourself, whether you're feeling terrible, you, it's all of it's welcome in that space. And that's the first time I've ever felt that sense of belonging. So I really get what you're saying. Mm. It's interesting, you know, you talk about getting into the gay community, like it's one of the most judgmental <laughs> communities. Like on the inside, gay people are very judgmental about people that don't accept homosexuality, but they're equally as judgmental about the different types of gay people in the community. It was like one of the funny things I realized. And for me, you know, I, I act very straight. So they have a name for it. It's called straight acting, right, in the gay community. And so <laughs> I would always get shit of being like, man, what are you like? Why are you pretending to be straight all the time? Like, you, are you ashamed? Are you, are you trying to hide something or whatever? And I was like, no, I'm just, this is just me. I'm not hiding anything. And so yeah, I got put in the straight acting category. And so divided up. So, okay, you don't fit into all of this unless you accept all of it and you're not straight acting, then you don't fit here. So, yeah, it's, it's funny that you bring that up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because, it, again, it's tough. Like I said, we're all looking for spaces initially on the surface level where we can fit in. And often we get into these spaces, like I said, and, and we feel like we don't belong there. And we have to sort of then we have to adapt or we have to, you know, pretend or we have to be a certain way or act a certain way. And that's what ends up leaving us feeling like we've quote unquote, fit into this group in sort of like a puzzle piece way, but there's that lack of belonging. And I know quite a few guys that have entered into the gay community who, you know, really do struggle in a lot of ways because, you know, like a perfect example is one of the guys that works for my team. And last year he came out and it was, you know, a big, big ordeal from him because he, because of his background and where he comes from and the culture that he's from does not welcome it at all. And so I think that was a huge challenge for him. But, you know, he had grown up dating women for a very long time and he was used to being in relationships and all of a sudden found himself in a community where it's very challenging to find a, a monogamous long term relationship for a lot of them. And so, you know, he's experiencing this shift where he feels like he fits in, but in a lot of ways doesn't feel like he belongs because the men that he keeps meeting and dating oftentimes are not looking for the same things that he's looking for. They're not looking for the long-term committed relationships. And so he's having to adapt and, and shift and notice how uh, you know, parts of himself don't want to fully show up in that space. And, 
he, you know, he's questioned going back to heterosexual dating. And it was, it's really been interesting to watch that journey for him. And I think that it's really made it clear for me around more and more clear, really around that distinction between fitting in and, and really belonging. And I think that the goal is for us, especially in partnership, is to find people who help us feel like like we belong. You know, and first and foremost, in order to do that, we need to feel like we belong within ourselves. That is the biggest component that we can possibly do because so many of us are living out of integrity in ways, whether we are lying or cheating or stealing or we're, you know, doing jobs that we absolutely hate or selling products that we don't believe in or we're pretending to be straight when we're not or whatever the case is. That makes it feel like we don't belong even in our own space, in our own mind, in our own body. And so the work really starts with integrating those parts of ourselves and being willing and brave enough and strong enough to integrate those parts of ourselves that we often don't want to see. Yeah, I call it coming out. You know, like it's it's funny that it's a term used for being gay, you know, or coming out as gay. But I think it's appropriate what you just said, the start of that journey that's a lot of what I do in my coaching is like help people come out whatever that means to you whatever you've been hiding whatever's inauthentic and out of integrity in your life how to bring that out into the light mm, nice well, I like it what was your it sounded like you were pretty strong and pretty confident throughout that period you were talking about when you're doing opera and construction you're able to own both parts of yourself like you said what was the journey from there is it you know finding more belonging for you how did that look yeah, so I was fine with the journey and, and the sort of getting criticized or questioned around what I was doing with opera and construction. That wasn't the issue. I think the, the big challenge for me on my side had always been in and around relationships. And I was like the classic nice guy in a lot of ways. And for the men out there that aren't really familiar with Nice Guy, you should definitely read a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert Glover. Yeah, Dr. Glover was on the podcast about 10 episodes or so ago. It's a good one to check out as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I had him on the Man Talks podcast as well. And we're bringing him to Vancouver for a workshop because I just <laughs> cool. I love the work. Yeah. Love the work that he's doing. So him and I are going to lead a workshop. But, but I was like the classic nice guy, you know, and so... I was the giver that never really knew how to ask for what he wanted. I was the guy who was constantly trying to fix and caretake for all the people in my life. I was the guy that was constantly seeking approval from other people in, in every way, shape or form. You know, I did construction. I did opera in the beginning because I was seeking approval from the two men in my life. Right. Like <laughs> it was so glaringly obvious. But and, and yet I couldn't really see at the time. I was the guy that would avoid conflict at all costs and try and keep things smooth with, especially with the women that I would date. I was really the guy that in, in a lot of ways, the, the sort of like iconic um, stand or the iconic sort of like keystone for nice guys is, is the repression of their feelings and, and their inability to really ask for what they want. And how this manifested for me was, you know, I ended up going to university and doing a degree in music. And then I ended up traveling around the world. I sang in all over Europe, in the Czech Republic, Germany, France, Italy. I sang in China. I sang in, in North America, in Toronto, New York. And during that time, I had been dating this woman and she was absolutely incredible. And we had this you know, great relationship. But behind the scenes, I had constantly been lying and been cheating for a very long time. And in past relationships, I had done the exact same thing. And it was something that I had constantly struggled with. 
and I couldn't really seem to understand why it kept showing up and I couldn't seem to break free of it. And it was something that just seemed to dominate and control my life. And it led to basically the destruction of this great relationship that I had. She found out in a very sort of Hollywood style fashion, which I swear I will make a movie out of one day. But, you know, it's... Can you tell the story? Yeah. I mean, so her and I had moved to an island off the coast of BC and I was training with a mentor of mine who's since passed away. And she had found some text messages and some photos from this other woman that I had been basically like, you know, having an affair with for two years. And she confronted me about it and I lied. I wouldn't admit to it, you know, which hindsight was pretty weak on my part, but I didn't know what else to do, right? I was just so used, I was so caught up in the, in the lies and, and not hurting other people and, and feeling like I was broken, et cetera, that I just couldn't tell the truth. It seemed like something that was impossible for me. And so, you know, I lied through my teeth and somehow managed to convince her that, you know, this other woman was just crazy and she was sending me this shit and that I wanted nothing to do with it. And obviously, you know, there's a big part of my partner at that time that just didn't buy into it. She was just like, (laughs) how can I even believe you? You know, this sounds like such garbage because it was. And so she said, I'm going to go take two weeks to go spend some time with my friend. And, you know, I want you to like really think about this and I want you to come clean with me and whatever has been going on. I want you to know that I love you. I care about you and I want to work through this with you. And so here was this incredible woman who was not only saying, I understand that you're hurting. I I actually know that you're lying. And all that I want from you is to tell me the truth. And it was so confronting for me because I was like, okay, this is my chance. I could just own it all up. We'll move forward with this relationship. Well, you know, maybe it'll get fixed. Maybe it won't. Whatever the case may be, but she's willing to accept whatever I have to say. And, and I still couldn't do it. I was just so deep down this like nice guy path of like needing to protect the other person and needing to like lie and manipulate so that I always looked like this great guy that I just couldn't do it. And so she ended up going to her friend's place. And after about a week and a half, this woman who I had been basically having an affair with for, you know, a couple of years showed up on my doorstep and, you know, basically was like, Hey, I want to see you. And I was trying to refuse. I was like, no, I'm not coming down. I'm not coming to see you. And she said, listen, it's snowing out. I can't catch a bus back to the place where I'm staying. Can you at least drive me home? And I said, fine, I'll drive you home, but I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see you. Like we're done here. You know, my partner's found out. I'm done with this mess. This is too much drama, too much bullshit. And so finally I, you know, go downstairs and we jump in the car and (laughs) we are driving through this, the streets and it is, it's snowing outside. There's like, it's a snowstorm. There's no buses out. There's probably like a foot and a half of snow on the grounds. There's nobody, there's nobody out in the streets. And, uh, we pull up to a set of lights and we're sitting there. And as we are sitting at this red light, Across the street walk these three people and I look out the front window and there is my girlfriend. Oh, man. She's smiling because she recognizes my car (laughs) and she looks in the window and she looks at me and she's smiling and she starts waving and then her smile just turns into, you know, terror because she sees the woman in the passenger seat and she sees the woman that's been texting me and the photos that she saw. And so her happiness immediately turns to not that. And I can tell that she's heartbroken. And so that was the end of that. And I ended up, she ended up moving out and I ended up because I was so ashamed of everything that was happening. I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't want to tell my friends. I didn't want to tell my family. 
I didn't want to tell even like my closest guy friends. And so I ended up putting my stuff into storage and living out of the back of my car for almost three weeks until one night I was, you know, laying in the back of my car and it was a, it was a 2007 Pontiac G5. And as, as a dude that's like six foot two, trying to camp out in the back of your G5 is just the worst fucking life choice that you can ever make. And I remember sitting there one night and it's freezing cold. I got my sleeping bag and my head's on my pillow and I'm looking out the window out of the stars. And, and it's been about two and a half weeks. I smell pretty bad because I haven't really showered. It's not that I didn't have money to go stay in a hotel. It's not that I was broke. It's not that I was even like unwilling to, to go and stay somewhere. It's that that's what I thought I deserved. I thought I deserved to go and, and stay in the back of my car. Like it was going to teach me some life lesson and that, you know, if I was going to bottom out, I might as well bottom out all the way. And I just remember laying there that night and kind of like rationally thinking about what was happening in my life. And, and I really came to the logical conclusion that I only had two choices. Number one was that I ended everything and that I took my own life and that nobody had to know about what had happened. Not my parents, not my family, not my friends. I could continue to hide that secret. I could continue to hide that shame and my shadow side and the guilt and the pain that I had and the, the hurt that I had caused. I could hide all of it and just kind of like relieve myself of it in some way, shape or form. And the second option was to own up to it and really own the fact that I had been out of integrity and that I had done some, you know, pretty shitty things and I'd hurt a lot of people and really own the parts of myself that I'd been hiding for a long time. And option number one didn't really seem like a great idea. And I fundamentally believe that for anybody out there, no matter who you are, no matter what your situation is, that that is just never, ever, ever an option. It's just never an option, no matter what's going on. You know, the next morning I woke up and I drove to a friend's place. I took the ferry back over to Vancouver and I just let it all out. And I said, this is everything that's been going on. This is everything that's been happening and I need a place to stay and I need, and I need some help. Who, who did you say this to? Uh, a close friend of mine that I had gone to school with, that I had gone to uh, university with. And luckily he took me in and he, he put me up with his parents. And from there, you know, I started getting help and I started studying psychology. And I took two years off. I quit singing and tried to figure out what I actually wanted to do because I realized that, you know, I had gone down this path of doing construction and gone down this path of singing opera because I was trying to get validation from other people in my life. And I realized that I actually had no idea what I wanted to do at all. And that I didn't want to live my life in such a way where it was built on getting validation from other people constantly. So it was, it was finally time for me to shift. So I ended up spending the next two and a half years not working, studying psychology, positive psychology, gestalt therapy, CBT, and basically diving into the human psyche and, and starting to learn what I wanted to do with my life. Wow, that's such a crazy story. Yeah. So real, though, like so authentic. <laughs> So many guys will relate to it in some some way or another. Yeah, I hope so. I find it interesting. Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about you know the nice guy syndrome. I'm like chronic nice guy as well, recovering nice guy. And I remember Robert Glover saying that first of all, nice guys aren't that nice. They, they do everything. They're only being nice to protect themselves in some way. And that it comes from usually comes from you know some tumultuous part of your childhood that you make the decision that I need to keep my life safe, comfortable. I need to control everything. 
the, the ultimate goal is just not rock the boat so that you don't have to feel all those emotions, all that fear that you felt as a child. So you learn this technique just to keep everything nice and everything sweet to protect yourself, really. Man, I so got it when you said, you know, you had that option to be honest and your girlfriend said, hey, there's no, no problem here. All I want from you is honesty. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to feel that the confrontation and the fear and all that messiness. So yeah, you just keep being nice and you just keep not saying anything. Just keep trying to smooth it over. I mean, that's the thing is that we all, it's kind of this like funny irony in a big way, right? Because we're all in some way, shape or form, all that we really want is to have our truth be seen and accepted. Whatever that is, whatever our truth is, we ultimately want it to be revealed and we want it to be seen by people that we love and care about. And then we want it to be accepted. You know, we, again, we want to feel like we belong. And the funny irony of it is that the whole nice guy paradigm makes it so that we can actually never do that. You know, we, we never get to fulfill on that intrinsic human mission that we really are on. And so we never feel like we're fully living purpose. We never feel like we're fully showing up for our relationship or getting what we want from our relationship. And this is often why so many guys out there, you know, have been in a relationship for five, six, seven years and can't commit, not because they don't want to get married, not because they don't want to have a family, but because there's this part of themselves that feels like they're not showing up fully in the relationship or that the relationship's going to take away a part of their freedom. And so they end up continuing to hide it. And I mean, it's, it's really interesting because I have a saying that every nice guy was once an asshole and every asshole was once a nice guy. And I see it time and time again. It's so true. You hear women talk about guys that they dated. They're like, oh, he was such a nice guy. And then he cheated. And now he's an asshole. Right. Or like, oh, he was such an asshole. And he's turned into like this, this nice guy. And it's just like, well, he probably has just started to hide the shit that's going on. You know, he saw that being an asshole wasn't really working for him. And so it's, it's really interesting to see the shifts that end up happening. So is the goal to become, you know, fully self-expressed, asshole, nice guy, all of it. And then you get into a relationship that allows you to express that. Is that kind of where it leads? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think that there's a lot of people out there that have uh, like, quote unquote, the answer to, to questions <laughs> like these. And I've never been the guy that's like, you know, the guru or the person that's like, I'm going to tell you how to run life. I'm simply here and specifically here on the podcast to to share my experience and to share what I've seen. And so on that note, I, you know, from what I have witnessed in my own life and what I've witnessed in the lives of men who are really living a deeply fulfilling life is that the goal is to be able to see the parts of ourselves. And these, these are the shadow parts. Carl Jung talked about the shadow. The goal is really to start to see the parts of ourselves that we want to avoid the most and to start to integrate those parts into our being, the parts that we would hide, the parts that we might be ashamed of, the parts that we don't want to talk about or that we don't want people to see. And the goal is to not only integrate them, that's kind of step one. And then step two would be to find somebody who loves you regardless or because of or inclusive of those parts. And to be able to say, I see all of you. I see the parts of you that you think are broken. I see the parts of you that are absolutely fucking amazing. I see the parts of you that are hurting right now or that have hurt in the past. I've seen how you've been hurt. I see all of those components and I still accept you and I still love you 
and I still want to share this life and this time with you. And that's real intimacy. That's a real connection. That's, I think, on many levels, what not just men are looking for, but what human beings are looking for. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, the piece that I was feeling there was like, you know, self-love as well. Like if you find that person that loves you unconditionally, if you can't accept and love those parts of yourself, you won't believe that they can love it. Yeah. I mean, self-love is an interesting thing, right? Because I think a lot of guys are like, I mean, even when I I heard self-love, the first time I heard it, I was like, what the hell is that? Like, what the (laughs) hell is self-love? Like, I got to love myself. Like, I I don't have a point of reference for that. And so I like to say that self-compassion is actually the precursor to any form of self-love. And that oftentimes what we as men actually need to cultivate isn't necessarily directly self-love, but more directly is is self-compassion. Because we can often be, and and this is, again, a human thing, the biggest critics of ourselves. And we can be, you know, the harshest people, the the most deprecating, self-deprecating individuals and really be harsh on ourselves. And so it's hard to love yourself when you're shitting all over yourself every single day for your actions, for not being good enough. It really is. The, The jump seems to be huge. Like there's this big chasm between oftentimes where we feel like we are and this concept of self-love. And so usually what I say to men is, is, you know, don't worry so much about trying to be in this space where like you quote unquote love yourself, but just start with the first step of self-compassion. How could you find some resemblance of self-compassion today in this moment? What are you beating yourself up for right now in this moment that you could have some form of forgiveness for yourself with and some form of self-compassion for yourself on. And that will take you further than trying to make the leap across the chasm uh, towards self-love. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for making that distinction. Again, what came to mind is food for me has always been interesting relationship with food. And it's only through, Mm -hmm. I worked with a a food coach at the start of the year, Daniel Thomas, he's been on the show as well. And he really identified where I was using food and it was a real life changer for me. One, it was when I was really tired, you know, the nature of being a pilot is you spend a lot of time flying at night, so you're fatigued all the time. And for me, food or sugar or whatever was the the thing I used to feel good when I felt exhausted. And the other one was just around anxiety and just when I felt stressed or overwhelmed or when I was confronting some fears around something. And I used to eat in private, so I'd sit and eat a whole packet of cookies in my bed you know with the door closed so nobody could see it it was like a really shameful thing that I just didn't have control over my food intake and self-compassion was what changed that initially I couldn't just go cold turkey and suddenly just be eating salads four times a day but as I was eating the shitty food I could start to feel hey it's because you're tired it's because you know you're confronting some fears like life's tough at the moment it's cool like okay this is the way you're handling it that's cool you know eventually it'll get better you'll be able to work on it but it's okay (laughs) you know this is your tool and man when I started doing that you're right it's the first step before you take any action so coming from that place Mm -hmm. of going yeah this is just a really challenging situation for myself and it's okay I I get it and then moving okay now what are we going to do about it Yeah. And I think that that takes awareness. It's all awareness, right? 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting because this self-awareness seems to be like a buzzword in our mainstream culture right now. And you have guys like Gary Vaynerchuk, who I love, and I've you know brought him to Vancouver to speak in front of almost 2,000 people and hung out with them and, and chat with them. You have guys like Gary Vee that preach self-awareness all the time. And you have people that are following him and listening to him and idolizing him and pedestaling him and you know, treating him like he's some entrepreneurial spiritual guru that end up being like, yeah, self-awareness is everything. Self-awareness is everything. And it's like, yeah, you love the concept of self-awareness, but are you actually being self-awareness? Are you actually integrating self-awareness into your actions and into your daily mindset? Or is self-awareness just something that you've bought into as a good idea? Because those are two different things. And this is where I see a lot of guys stumble and fall is that they learn a new concept and they're like, oh, yeah, this I learned this great concept called appreciative inquiry. and It's going to change my relationship or, oh, yeah, I've learned this great idea around self-awareness. And it's like it's going to change my life because we all want some, you know, magic pill or magic secret to like change our life. But the issue with that, it doesn't turn in. It doesn't translate into a way of being. If you look at Gary Vee and you really look at his success, it's not because he says some really cool shit. He actually says most of the same things all the time. He reiterates a lot of the same things. People follow him because he's actually living those things that he talks about. He actually does them on a day-to-day basis. His level of self-awareness, his level of emotional intelligence is extraordinarily high. He knows internally when he's out of balance for him and his version of balance and his version of being out of balance. And if people could cultivate that rather than just being like bought in and thumbs up for a concept or, or bought into the idea of something, but if they could actually live self-awareness, then self-compassion would come so much faster because you could actually see, and there's a great quote by Alan Watts that I love. And he basically says, what if you are the way you are And there's nothing you can do about it. And you just sit there and you're like, what if you can't change? We all want to change. We all want some part of our life to change. Maybe we want better money, more finance, you know, better financial situation, better health, better eating, better diet, better abs, you know, better partner, better job, whatever the case may be. We all want something to change. But what if we can't actually change who we are? Then what are we left with? And the answer is just awareness. It's just being aware of what's actually happening within us and who we're being in those moments. And by being awareness, then maybe there's a, a hope or a sliver of a chance that we can start to change the things or not even directly change them. They just inadvertently change through our awareness, right? It's like quantum mechanics. That's how quantum mechanics works. You know, particles act a certain way until we look at it. Particles act a certain way until there's awareness that they exist and then they function differently. Hmm. And so maybe the same works with our consciousness. You know, if we can bring some deep level of awareness into what it is that we're actually doing and who it is that we're actually being on a day to day basis, hopefully within that space, there's an opportunity and a chance for change to manifest, for change to actually happen inherently, regardless of our actions. Yeah, shame comes up for me there, you know, as being a big barrier of not wanting to it's the idea of like you don't get on the scales you know you're overweight but you don't get on the scales because you don't want to make it real or i guess example for you is that this pattern that you had in your relationships it's kind of scary to look at that and become aware of it and, and see it initially because 
it's easier to ignore it sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we don't know what's on the other side, right? Like I, I interviewed this guy on the Man Talks podcast and his name is Bo Lotto and he's a neuroscientist. And we were talking about change. We were talking about growth and, and how we can actually manifest or achieve our goals. And he said something interesting, which was, you know, the brain is not designed to deal with uncertainty. The brain is actually designed as a pattern recognizer to recognize things that we already know and to assimilate them in such a way that we can sort of create what our future will look like. We'll understand what's happening in our present, but our brain is designed for us to identify what is certain about our lives. And any sort of change is inherently confronting, but it also something that we're not really designed to do because on the other side of change are things that we don't know. And our brain doesn't want to do that. Our brain doesn't want to move towards that. And so this is where motivation, I'll take your fitness example, motivation to shift your workout, to shift your health is actually just kind of bullshit. Like, you know, the, the whole like motivational industry is really predicated on this idea that we should feel motivated to change first before any actions that we should be able to like snap our fingers or touch a part of our body. And all of a sudden we'll put ourselves in this state where we'll feel hyper motivated to go and do shit. That has been pretty much clinically proven that it doesn't work. <laughs> and for the majority of people, thinking that we're going to be really motivated to lose 20 pounds and go to the gym five days a week when we haven't been working out for the past two years is absolutely fucking ludicrous. But that's what we think. That's what we buy into. That's how our brain things need to go down. And so with that awareness, again, with the awareness that our brain does not want to basically do anything or allow us to do anything that will create uncertainty with that awareness, then we can be able to say, okay, what do I need to do in this moment to actually move through this? Knowing that maybe I'm not going to be motivated to go to the gym tomorrow morning at 6.30 a.m., knowing that I might not be motivated to eat healthier tomorrow evening after a 10-hour day at work. And you've forgotten why you're doing it in the first place. You forgot that you have this That's dream of having a great body. That's all gone. That's right. That's right. So knowing all of those things, what do you do? Well, you stay present in the moment. You have a deep sense of awareness and you notice when your brain is trying to create predictive outcomes in the future where it's trying to predict what you'll look like or how fast you'll lose weight or whether or not you're going to go to the gym in the morning. Just notice how often your brain wants to take you down that path and bring yourself back to the present moment and just be aware of what's actually happening in your mind and in your body and in your emotional state, do you feel anxious? Do you feel stressed? Just start to notice and start to sift through the sort of storm that seems to be happening and make the choice anyway. Just decide and make the choice anyway. Yeah, I've heard it said that the mind can only see what it's going to lose because it can only look backwards and look at its reference point. It can't ever see the infinite possibility of what could be created. It only has this reference point of the past. And so when you go... Well, for me, you know, giving up a flying career a couple of weeks ago, I could feel my whole body and my mind freaking out. Like my heart, I, I knew exactly I was doing the right thing, but I had so much anxiety because all that my mind could conceive of was losing this income. What about the sense of community and fitting in? You know, this has been your whole life since you're 17. What are you going to do? Like what, were you just going to sit around all day? Like these are the thoughts that would creep into my head. Because it doesn't know all the incredible possibilities that could happen when you give up something like that. 
So yeah, I was really aware and I was really proud of myself of how much awareness I could have of all of those things and realize, oh yeah, that's just my mind freaking out about what it's going to lose. But I know deep in my heart, there's so much more out there that can be gained if I just kind of trust and move towards it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly it. That I think the saying is your mind always knows what it stands to lose, but it never knows what it stands to gain. And, yeah. and again, if we can come back to that space, it's, it's such a powerful reminder because you don't know what's on the other side. And we often have attachments to what we would like to have happen on the other side, right? That's the other thing is that <laughs> we have really, you know, we, our brain, because it, it doesn't know what's on the other side, it either creates the worst case scenario or the best case scenario. And we either try and avoid that or get attached to it, right? And that's the other thing that we need to be conscious of and aware of. It's really a tricky game, right? Life yeah. and consciousness is such a fascinating concept and, and experience. It's the understatement of the year. Life's a tricky game. You know, it's, 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 yeah, tr- cool. it's, a, it's a tricky little game to play. <laughs> It'll catch you out. Mm-hmm. So uh, take me up to modern day Connick and you give us the, you've created this incredible community that I'm in awe of. It's called Mantalks, mantalks.com. Been in your Facebook group for six months or so. James Butler introduced me to that. And I've been blown away by, first of all, how active you are and how great your insights are and the way you stimulate that community and the men in that community, how you've created this really great environment. I see some incredible discussions in there. And I I read that the purpose of Man Talks is to create self-aware, high-performing, impactful men, which, again, that just resonated with me. You you captured that so beautifully. So how is that kind of created that's able to create this incredible business and community? Yeah. So first off, thanks for the kind words and and thanks for participating in the Man Talks conversation and community because it's, you know, it really is a byproduct of what I'm committed to. And it's, it's cool to see how it's unfolded. So, I mean, after those two and a half years of not working and uh, studying psychology and really doing my own work, you know, getting through some of my own stuff, I set two goals for myself. One of them was to learn about business from the best in business which in my perspective was Apple. So I went and got a job at Apple. And my second goal was to start my own company. And so I worked at Apple and very quickly moved my way up through the ladder, through the the corporate ladder and loved it and was overseeing massive teams and was overseeing most of the Vancouver market. And it was overseeing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of worth of business for them and uh, was really, really loving what I was doing. And And again, this is where it comes back to feeling like you fit somewhere but might not belong. I still felt, even though I felt like I fit so well within that organization, I still felt like there was more that I was meant to do. So I created an event in 2014 and it was just to raise some money. And the idea was that I would have three or four men come out and share their sort of autobiography in 20 minutes or less. And that they would share their perspective, their life's biggest challenges, their life's biggest defining moments, the biggest lessons that they had taken away. And so we did that. And so we, you know, we raised 800 bucks, which wasn't a lot, but we had 42 people out to the very first event and it was just meant to be a one-off. But what ended up happening after that was, you know, for the next 24 to 72 hours, I had people Facebook messaging me and texting me and calling me and emailing me and, and just saying like, Hey, that was incredible. And you know, one guy wrote me and said, I went home and realized I really had such a dysfunctional relationship with my father. And the next night he called his dad for the first time in 10 years, they hadn't spoken in 10 years. 
and they start to rebuild their relationship. And it was really interesting to see some of the things that were happening just out of this event where, you know, it's not like we had a training program. It's not like we got locked people in a room and like broke them down psychologically. And, you know, some of the other stuff that happens out in the personal development world. We just had a conversation. It was just men telling their story, their real fucking story. And it was so powerful. And so we did another one in 2014. And it's the same thing. We grew. We saw about 60 people. And then in 2015, we had about 10 events. And we started growing to to this space where we started seeing, you know, 100, 150, 175 people out to these monthly events. And I was like, oh, what the heck? And so by the end of that, we had really grown quite a bit. And so we had launched a mastermind group because all of our events are open to men and women. We want women to come and be a part of the conversation and hear what we're talking about. And, you know, sometimes come and speak on our stage about relationships and what they're looking for. And so we ended up launching a mastermind group in Vancouver that was men only, where we could take these conversations a bit further for the guys who were wanting to cultivate more self-awareness, be more high-performing, achieve the results in their life, feel fulfilled, have the great relationships. And very quickly, that started to evolve as well. And, and, you know, before it, it was in 2016, it turned into a year-long program. And then last year, in 2016, we launched in Calgary. We launched in Toronto. We launched in Los Angeles, Miami, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Ottawa. So we launched in like a dozen cities around North America and, and very quickly kind of spread the organization spread out and the events spread out to all these cities, which, you know, brings us to this year where we had a conference for 1500 people in Vancouver for a different brand that I built. And Man Talks is really starting to thrive and expand. And we're building these chapters for men in all the subsequent cities that we have our events. And the podcast has taken off where we've had some incredible people on there like Jason Silva and Gary Vaynerchuk and Mastin Kip and, you know, a few other names. And we have people writing for our blog from all over North America and all over the world, actually, who write some great stuff about masculinity and finding purpose and relationships. And it's just been this kind of like wild ride that I didn't really foresee in the very beginning. And that's been incredible to see the impact that it's had on men's lives. So that kind of brings you to, to where we are today. You make it sound so easy. Just <laughs> one foot in front of the other. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, you know, like consistency is like a secret weapon. You know, it really is. Like, I think that people often expect these sort of like huge leaps to happen. You know, like they see people's careers or lives or, or businesses just like quote unquote blow up. And what people don't realize is that takes a hell of a long time. And like, we're not anywhere close to where I even think that we can be or know that we can be or want our organization to be. We have so much further to go. Like we're small. We're a really small organization compared to some of the big guys that are out there. And so, you know, we have a long way to go, but consistency time and time again is what people are often lacking. And whenever I talk to guys who feel unfulfilled in their relationship or their business or, or even they're not getting the results that they want in their fitness routine and their health, it's like, what do you think is missing? And consistency is consistently the the answer. And it really is one of the keys to success. It, it really is. It's just like, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm not the most talented guy in the room. People on my team are, are way smarter than I am about things like organizational management and marketing and, and sales. But I am just relentless. I really am. I'm, I have a certain degree of relentless optimism and I just take action every single day, day in and day out in a very 
singular direction. And that seems to produce the results that, that ultimately I'm looking for. Yeah, that's such a great lesson though. It reminds me of McDonald's taught me a lesson when I was young. My, my first business was owning a fish and chip shop with my brother. We did it for um, two years together. And I did a lot of research into McDonald's at the time. And their whole thing was consistency, like most people know. And not the best burger in the world, but the most consistent burger. So you know when you go to McDonald's, actually you know whenever you go to McDonald's anywhere in the world, you're going to get the exact same cheeseburger. It's, it's not the best cheeseburger, not by a long way, but it's exactly the same. It's consistency what created their business. In terms of your success, because it's, you know, how it's in three years, it's expanded pretty rapidly. Fear of success is one of the big fears that doesn't get talked about too much, but the idea that, man, what if this all gets too big and I can't handle it? Mm-hmm. If you, if you had to confront that at all. It's not necessarily the fear of getting too big. I think that fear of success is definitely, you know, I just recorded this mini episode yesterday. Actually, it's funny that you bring this up around the topic is called what stops us from starting. And it's funny because oftentimes in mainstream culture, people have this perception that the, the fear of failure is what stops us from starting. And, and then the reality of it is that failure, we understand conceptually that failure is actually just an inherent part of us learning and moving towards success. Like you didn't learn how to ride your bike flawlessly on the very first try or learn how to tie your shoes flawlessly on the very first try, you know, unless maybe you are a savant, in which case like cool, good for you, you're 0.001 of the percent of, of people that can actually do that. But for the majority of people, for most people, Failure is just like something that we consciously know is going to happen and that it's just going to be there. But again, going back to what our brain doesn't know is what's on the other side of success. We don't know. And oftentimes success represents this confronting of our limiting beliefs, of our internal narratives about ourselves, And that is what's very confronting about success. I've talked to more guys who are confronted by the idea of succeeding because it would mean that they're going to be different. And so usually I like to ask, and maybe this is something that the guys that are listening to this podcast can chew on is really, you know, who would you be if you were successful? What would you need to let go of in order to be successful? Who would you need to become in order to have the success that you're ideally looking for? Because oftentimes the answers are, I would need to let go of this idea or this belief that I'm not good enough to achieve that or that I'm not smart enough to achieve that or that I am not action oriented enough to accomplish those things. And so we need to take a real look at who we would need to become in order to accomplish success. And if we can start to see that person within ourselves, if we can start to see the person who has a little bit more belief than we do now, not in this like really grandiose you know, if you believe it, you can achieve it kind of bullshit or like leap in the net will appear, uh, which I, I just side note, I think is like, I really hope that nobody out there has this like, you know, posted on their wall. But I think it's like the biggest bullshit quote of all time. Leap in the net will appear. It's like, no, if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, you're going to fucking die. You're going to land on your face. If you want, you need to build the parachute so that you can jump out of the airplane so that you can land safely on the ground. And I think that that's what people really need to be doing more and more often is how do we build the parachutes in our life? How do we actually make it so that when we do leap, we do succeed? I built Mantox while working at Apple. And that meant that I had to have 
80 hour weeks, 90 hour weeks, 100 hour weeks. And that was the reality. That was the price that I was willing to pay to run my own company, to be able to travel the world and speak about this topic, to be able to run an organization that impacted hundreds and hopefully thousands of men's lives around the world. That's what I was committed to. And so on the other side of that, the confronting part for me was who am I going to be when that happens? It was very confronting and I still face it every day. You know, like I got told as a kid that I was stupid. I got told that I had ADD. I had a reading disability. I got told that I would never amount to anything. Like these were real things that I heard. Like I was a stupid piece of shit. Those were the real things that I heard growing up. And so whenever I'm confronted with success, it's not like I'm worried about turning into some douchebag or asshole. I'm confronted with the idea and the fact that I have this wounded, hurt little boy within me that is so terrified of achieving success because it would mean that that story that I've been telling myself for decades isn't true anymore. It's just not true. And that's confronting. That's almost more terrifying than failure. And so if we can start to come face to face with that reality and have enough courage and bravery to face that part of ourselves, that's where real success happens. That's where real fulfillment happens. And that's where real growth starts to appear. It comes into like the mind is it only has the story about who you are. And this is who I am. I'm not the type of person that can create action. I've never been able to be consistent. How am I going to do it now? But again, trusting that you will become that person. Exactly. Or even though like that who you were doesn't matter it doesn't have to be the future you can create that however you want it i was just journaling on this myself actually i just i don't know i had a lot of fear come up the last couple of days about my business and different things and i was like ah, i just got to get all this out and so i just <laughs> was writing all these you know they look stupid once you write them down but all these fears and one of them was the fear of responsibility like taking on a high-end client at a really premium rate and then having to be a certain person like man i'd have to show up every week and i'd lose my freedom you know there'd be some some responsibility that i'd have to own up to and, and, and show up every week a certain way and i was like when you said that that that's what came up for me is like oh, yeah i have a fear of losing freedom of this business getting too busy and my freedom somehow being stripped away Mm. Yeah. And it is confronting, right? Like we all face that part of ourselves as like, who am I to work with this person or who am I to accomplish those things? Or do I really even deserve it? Right. And so it's, it's a very confronting space. Like I last year and for the last couple of years, I've started working with guys that are running businesses and companies that are over a million dollars. And it's been something that I really love and enjoy. And at first it was so confronting because I was like, who the hell am I to work with these guys? You know, but what I started to realize was that I had cultivated parts of myself that they had never even looked at. And that a lot of these men were looking for a deeper sense of purpose in their life that they never had bothered to try and find. And so they had become very successful, but were still unhappy. They were still unfulfilled. And here I was, you know, working towards the balance of both of them, of success and fulfillment. There's a great quote by Tony Robbins where he says, success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. And I fundamentally agree. Yeah, so how do you manage that? I, I've also heard him say that you know, success is a science. You can learn how to be successful by following certain proven steps, but fulfillment's an art. It's something you have to look at every day. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is something that you have to look at every day. I think, you know, for me, having a journaling practice has been extraordinarily helpful. That's really helped me continue to cultivate that self-awareness on a daily basis and continue to look at the parts of myself that are confronted, continue to be grateful and appreciate the growth and the progress that I make on a daily basis and to be proud of certain things in my life, you know, and that keeps me in the direction of fulfillment. I like to say that aim for fulfillment and success will follow, not aim for passion because we have passions for so many different things, but aim for the truly fulfilling things and success follows that. And then you have the best of both worlds because people do it ass backwards. They aim for success and think, oh, once I have a million dollars, I'll just magically be happy. But you're a miserable bastard along the entire journey and you become isolated and alone. And then you have all this money, but you hate yourself and your relationship and you're doing cocaine and banging hookers. And all of a sudden you're like, well, this actually isn't the life that I wanted to have. And I know that sounds like a very extreme example. <laughs> But, you know, a lot of guys live into that in their own way. It might not be as extreme as that, but they live into that in their own way. And so if we aim for fulfillment on a daily basis and start to remind ourselves through meditation, through gratitude journaling or just through journaling altogether, we can start to remind ourselves of what we're actually fulfilled by, what actually is meaningful to us, because a lot of guys haven't even bothered to ask that question. And so when they start looking at it, it's like, well, I don't actually know. And so there's this great opportunity to go out and start to discover that. Yeah, you talk a lot about creating a life of purpose. And I think that's important for men in particular, that they feel like they're living a life on purpose. What are some of the ideas around purpose? Like finding your purpose is a kind of a cliche now, right? Like finding your purpose. And for me, I really believe there's a lot of people come to me and they'll say, wow, you're so lucky you know what you want to do and you've always known what you want to do with your life. But it hasn't always been that easy. I made my purpose finding my purpose. So I just tried a bunch of stuff and failed at a bunch of things and went, yeah, that feels good. That doesn't feel good. So when someone says to me, like, how do I know what my purpose in life is? I say, well, your first purpose is just to start playing with stuff. Your first purpose is to find your purpose. And that journey mm. will take you a whole bunch of different places. And there's a great line, The Way of the Superior Man, where he says purpose is like an onion. You have all these smaller purposes that will eventually lead you down to that real core purpose, but you have to go through those different things to get to that core purpose eventually. What are some of the concepts around purpose that you believe? Yeah, I, it's such an interesting topic. And again, this is where I think that awareness is so crucial because you need to be aware of the things that do fulfill you and where you're seeking validation in your life because oftentimes people will confuse other people's purpose for their own. It's actually why a lot of people get into things like personal development, oftentimes in coaching sometimes and or running businesses that their parents ran, that their father ran, is because they're buying into somebody else's joy. And so for me, one of the surest ways to find purpose is to follow the path of failure. And nothing teaches you more about what you are what you love to do, what you're willing to do, what you're fulfilled by, then failing at shit in life. Because you very quickly start to identify the things that you never ever are willing to work to fail at again. And when you find a sense of purpose, usually you're willing to fail over and over and over and over again. You don't mind the failure. You're like, yeah, I'll just keep failing at this. I will continue to do it because it brings my life joy. It brings my life meaning and it makes my life 
means something and worthwhile. And so I would say, look at what you love failing at. Like, what do you just absolutely love failing at? What do you learn the most from when you fail? That's number one. Number two, I would say that the purpose always resides at this funny intersection between the shit that we're really great at, our top skills, and the things that we feel fulfilled achieving results in. And what I mean by that is that we are high-performing men. This is where a lot of high-performing guys can really get lost is that high performers, they can achieve results almost in any area of their life, but a lot of their results are completely empty. And so for me, where I've really found this like sweet spot is between the areas of this is the shit that I'm really good at and I enjoy doing. And these are the results and the accomplishments and goals and achievements that I love crushing that mean something to me because there's a whole bunch of goals and accomplishments and achievements that I actually just don't give a shit about, but I can still go out and crush them on a day-to-day basis. And so for me, that's where the sweet spot for purpose is. Awesome. Yeah. So concise. Thanks for that. Only got a few minutes left, so I just want to uh, mention mantalks.com again and the, the community that you've created. What, what do you want uh, guys to look at? If Is there any uh, products or any things that you've got on the burner at the moment that you'd love people to get involved with? Yeah, I mean, we don't have any products at the moment besides the Mastermind, which is only in Vancouver and Calgary and Canada and Toronto coming up. But we're actually building a course and uh, online platform for men. And the course is going to be actually around purpose because this is something that a lot of the guys have have reached out about. But in the interim, you know, I would just say check out the podcast and just be be a part of the community. Join the Mantas community. Join the conversation that we have online. Interact, learn, grow, meet some really kick-ass guys. And, you know, if there was a podcast episode that I would say that you should check out, it would probably be the episode that I did with Robert Masters, who you might want to have on your podcast. And, you know, him and I talk about... Uh, We talk about purpose, but we also talk about porn and porn addiction and uh, deepening intimacy in our relationships and how to actually ask for what we want in our relationship dynamics. So I would say definitely check out that episode. That's awesome. And your story is amazing. And thank you for being so open. And, you know, again, I'm just in awe of what you've created. It's so needed and it's so you've put so much thought into it and it really comes through and everything that you do. The last question that everybody loves is about the dark side and you've touched on it, the shadow side a couple of times. Do you have a dark side and that you have to watch for and how have you learned to embrace it? Yeah, I love this question. I definitely have the Darth Vader within me. (laughs) My shadow side is deeply ingrained with sexuality. And so my, my darker side is and probably always will be linked to looking at women and being very drawn to some of them, uh, which makes being in a monogamous committed relationship challenging sometimes. And so that's the part of myself that I need to, that I always need to watch. And, you know, one of the things that we often do, if, if that resonates with some of the guys out there, is that we often fantasize and sort of sexualize the parts of ourselves. And this is probably for a whole other conversation, but, but we often sexualize the parts of ourselves that are in our shadow. And, mm-hmm. you know, so as an example, if, if you were physically abused as a child and you had somebody that, that really dominated you, you will either go in one of two directions. You will fantasize about being dominated as you grow up. And that will really be something that you sexualize or you will go the opposite direction and you will consistently and constantly seek to dominate the partners in your life 
out of a form of wanting to reassert your dominance, feel safe within yourself and not have to relive that childhood wound of feeling like you were helpless. And so for me, my challenge has always been, and my dark side has always been around sexuality. And, you know, I went through a pretty dark phase where, you know, sex was a bit of not a problem, but I definitely misused it. And I slept around a lot and acted out on a lot of those areas. And so that's the part of me that I always not need to watch, but have the opportunity to learn from because it has taught me so much about myself and my, what I want out of life and what I want out of love. Mm, great answer. Thanks for being open about that. That question was inspired by Dr. Glover. I sat next to him on a plane once and told him I was starting a podcast. And he said, make sure you ask people about their dark sides because nobody else is asking that question. <laughs> so it's a full nice. circle moment for us. Connor, thanks uh, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You're an awesome guy and uh, thanks for giving your insights. Thanks very much for having me and, and I appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. I have a lot of respect for it. So thank you. Thanks, man. There you have it, folks, my conversation with the wonderful Connor Beaton. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, Connor's an awesome guy, amazing story, and he's doing incredible things with Man Talks and just, you know, some amazing content that he's putting out into the world, just all in the name of helping men become more happy, more successful, more fulfilled. So check out Connor's website. It's called Man Talks, so mantalks.com, and the podcast is just called The Man Talks Podcast on iTunes. Look it up. As always, thanks for sharing the show around on Facebook. I love seeing you guys give it a like. I love getting comments. I love when you let me know what you like and what you don't like about the show so I can make the show better for you each and every week. Thanks for tuning in as always. I'll see you next week for episode 35 of the Nathan Seawood Show. That was the Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.